Welcome back to Schizotopia. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody. And joining me tonight to plumb the depth of the unconscious is Carl Young Memes herself, a.k.a. Sarah Mergen. Sarah, how are you? I'm I'm doing good. I'm a little nervous. This is my first time, you know, on a podcast that I guess is not my own. So mm, excited so to just, see how this goes. This is, this is the first time you've ever been interviewed on a podcast? Yeah, I wow. I think this might be my first time being interviewed like ever. You're gonna you're gonna get the schizo bump after this. People are gonna come <laughs> after you. All right, cool. Well, you're holding you're holding up much better than I did the first time I was on a podcast. Because first time I was on a podcast, uh, I was I was mom spaghetti. I was sweating through my palms. Um, I was extremely nervous. I was having to hold my breath. And what the funniest thing about it is that only like 50 people were ever gonna listen to that podcast. It was just nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> it's nerve wracking to do it regardless. So I'm always, I understand when people are, are new to this, I understand what it feels like. And it sounds like you're doing much better than me. You don't sound like you're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Oh, I mean, like seconds before this, definitely. But, you know, I mean, it is what it is, I guess. Um, I think the pandemic kind of messed me up. I used to be very good at talking to people. And then like throughout the pandemic, I just stopped talking to people and like completely forgot how to do that. But I don't know. No, I, people got desocialized. People got desocialized by the pandemic. And I, I have a friend who's a teacher and he he's he was telling me that the kids who are like, you know, mid teens during the pandemic who are now just getting out of high school and starting college, like they're almost completely like not socialized at all. Like they can't even handle basic conversation and eye contact. Um, they've been, yeah. they've been larvified or something. They've been like returned. <laughs> <laughs> they like, they missed, they missed some critical junction of puberty and have just gone straight back to like kindergarten. Uh, oh, yeah, socialization. Totally. so, um, it could be worse is all I'm saying. All right. We're, we're here to talk about a man who's near and dear to both of our hearts, Carl Young. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, Absolutely. who is Carl Young? The, the, the easy question for the for the for the lay person or the person who doesn't know any better who is Carl Young and then also if you would how did you Sarah get into Carl Young yeah well I mean I think that for like somebody who's never heard that name before usually I'm just like well you know who Freud is right and people are like you know for the most part yes I know who Sigmund Freud is and then I'm like okay so he's a dude who was a follower of Freud and then essentially disagreed with Freud's idea that everything was based on sex and so for Jung, like the 
unconscious, which I think most people kind of have an intuitive idea of what that term is referring to, is a lot more than just like things that we are repressing. It's not just like the trash can of the human psyche where we're just like pushing all of our weird pedophilic sexual fantasies that we don't want to acknowledge. He thought that there was like a lot more to that. And so he kind of broke away from Freud and started his sort of own direction into that inquiry, which I think like in the most basic level, I don't think that this captures it, but most people sort of associate Carl Jung's idea with being a little bit more religious in nature or suggesting that there's sort of a spiritual element to this unconscious like uh, area in our psyche. Um, and so that's just like, that is the easiest way I can describe it. Um, he's obviously like the originator of terms like archetypes or actually I'm not totally sure that he came up with the word archetype, but like, if you've ever heard that word, that's very much a Jungian phrase. He's also uh, the originator of the idea of the collective unconscious, which I think people like have heard of, but maybe don't know what that term means. Um, and for me personally, I think probably one of the biggest questions that I get on my page is like, oh, where do I start with Carl Jung? Where did you start with Carl Jung? What's like the easiest place to get into his work? And I never know how to answer that question because the fact of the matter is that I was raised in a very Jungian uh, household. My mom and both my parents really were involved in a lot of like the self-development circles of kind of like the 80s, like the human potential movement and stuff like that. So they were in this sort of milieu of people who were doing like workshops and retreats and this idea that if you want to accomplish something in life, you actually have to look at like what is deep within yourself that might be standing in the way of that. And so growing up, there was like this big bookcase that I would kind of like look at. It was in the room where I watched TV and played video games as a kid. And it just had like all these crazy, like esoteric books, like the Tibetan book, the dead, but also a lot of Jungian um, books and a lot of, you know, just things in that direction, the direction of depth psychology. And so I was very much raised, like, I don't know, I guess the best way I could put it is that like people who are raised Catholic often talk about having like Catholic guilt or like having these kind of carryovers from the almost ideology that they were raised with. I don't want to like say that that's an ideology, but you know what I mean? And for me, that was very much Jungian, like depth psychology, like a lot of the <clears throat> ideas that Jung mentions or talks about were just sort of like the way in which I was taught to relate to the world. And so growing up, I just had this very unique, I guess, perspective because of that. And it sort of separated me from some of my peers, from some of my friends, because they didn't like know where I was coming from. And at some point I was like, okay, I have to actually investigate sort of what my intellectual or um, ideological lineage is. Uh, it sounds like a really bad way to put it, but like at some point I have to get into this for myself and see what I can make of it, if that makes any sense. And so that's kind of part of the birth of Carl Jung memes on Instagram, um, as well as my own like interest in him as a person. So this is, this is interesting. You're a legacy Jungian. Um, yeah. Did you ever go through a period where you were like, screw you, mom and dad. This stuff is weird. It sucks. I don't want it. Um, You know, so I had some friends whose parents were friends of my parents. And I saw them kind of do that. Uh, like they were very kind of rejecting, like the parents would try and make them meditate and shit like that. And so they were very rejecting of anything that kind of came across as like new age or spiritual I would not call my parents new age. 
they're definitely a bit spiritual, but I don't know. I, I'm always curious as to like the reason why I didn't rebel against that. But I think it was just fundamentally the fact that it was helpful to me. Like the way that they phrased things just made sense. And definitely in my relationship to Jung, there was a period of time where I just like didn't really want to read him. I didn't really want to like pay attention to what he was saying. I kind of definitely had a moment where I very much doubted a lot of his line of reasoning. But a lot of that, I think, was because of the way in which I was relating to his ideas as sort of like these personified characters who I could not touch, like especially like the shadow or the anima and the animus, which are all kind of like Jungian archetypes. It's very easy to talk about those things in terms of being these sort of like weird characters that exist within your psyche and do things to you. And so it all sounded very like mythical. But then um, a lot of my work is related to mental health. As I tried to kind of get away from Jung, I got sucked back in. Like everything that I did to sort of get out from under that framework wound up just sort of bringing me back to him, if that makes any sense at all. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Jung struggled with his father's Christianity. And then yeah, in, exactly. in, do, yes. in doing so, he kind of brings himself back to Christianity, but in a a way that would probably be very different than what his uh, father had intended him to do. Um, and it, 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 it's interesting to see it's interesting to hear you describe that, but starting with the Jungian and then leaving me trying to <laughs> trying to pull away from it and then ending kind of uh, back in the same place. Um, it, it, people call often call Carl Jung the father of the the new age. Um, mm-hmm. he he was kind of doing some hippie guru stuff a good twenty, thirty years before the hippie gurus were around, except uh, and this is something that's always sort of frustrating about how people read Carl Jung. He's not a new ager in the sense of being all about love and light. No, no, not at all. Right. He's not, he, he, he very much was against the whole being insufferably positive. He thought that that's kind of what was the whole problem with the, the, the direction that Christianity had gone, that it had placed too much emphasis on the light and the good and the pure um, at the expense of all of these other unconscious forces. Um, And so I think a lot of new agers, like him because ostensibly he's the spiritual guy. He's not the materialistic uh, sort of crass Darwinian that Freud was. Um, so he's probably going to be open-minded about uh, the spiritual stuff. But actually, you know, it was funny. I, re- I recently read a letter. Somebody sent Carl Jung a bunch of Rudolf Steiner's works, mm-hmm. uh, thinking that Jung would be sympathetic. And the letter that Jung sends back to him is basically like, get this idiot away from me. Uh, I, I have <laughs> I have no time for prophets. I have no time for, for you know, this guy um, uh, astral projecting. I think he says something like, he closed the letter saying something like, um, Rudolf Steiner says he can read the language of Atlantis uh, from... 20,000 years ago, can can he read some Hittite uh, inscription from 2,000 years ago or something like that? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why don't you ask him to do that? So, like, just basically tells this person to fuck off. He wants nothing to do with theosophy. But what's interesting to me is that, uh, and I always make this distinction between um, millennial Jungians, boomer Jungians, and Zoomer Jungians. And okay, the, the, line, yeah. the line of delineation is... Um, uh, can you remember the time before the Red Book? Because the Red Book wasn't always public. 
Uh, oh, it, that's it, a good that, one. Yeah, that was a that was a point of contention. I remember being in high school when the Red Book was made public, and it was like there were some people saying that this is wrong. This is a man's private thoughts, and they they, they shouldn't be made public. Now I'm glad that it was, and I'm glad that um, you know we can read and, and and study that now. But you see that you know in his private life. Obviously, Carl Jung was engaging in a, a really intense mystical practice, but he was always mm -hmm. trying to separate um, his descent into, you know, his own mystical visions from his actual work, right? And I think so when, you, when you look at somebody like Rudolf Steiner or maybe some of these other uh, New Age gurus or seers or prophets or whatever, uh, they don't really make that distinction. Whatever their inner visions are, are, are revelations, are gospels. Um, whereas for Jung, he, he tried his hardest to keep those two personalities uh, separate. Totally. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that it, it's really interesting because one of the things that always jumps out at me when I'm reading Jung is that like at the beginning of any essay or work, he just like goes on. Literally, it'll be like a five page kind of, you know, he'll start to get into what he's going to talk about. But he always keeps coming back to like, oh, well, this is empirical. This is empirical. This is science. This is observable. And when I originally started to read him, like kind of when I was in this place of like, oh, do I actually believe what this dude is saying? The fact that he was so insistent upon that was a um, like it put me off from his work because I was like, OK, well, the fact that you have to say this so many times uh, kind of almost suggests that it's the opposite, that like what you're about to talk about is not empirical at all. But as I've kind of like grown into my understanding of him, I realized that it's like, no, he's emphasizing that because to work with and witness the things that he is working with it is a matter of like direct apprehension and experience and so i think that one of jung's kind of um one of the things that i've seen him kind of push back against uh is is this matter of belief right like if you have to approach his work or someone else's work or anything along those lines from this perspective of like i have to believe in something else out there then you are not actually getting at what he's trying to get at um, be because it is so experiential. And so like I could imagine him being very like against any sort of externalized mysticism, which of course is also you're right. Like he was trying to kind of conceal um, his the real nature of his work, like due to the scientific kind of perspective of his age. But certainly I think there's also this level of like, no, 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 my work is separate because it is almost so obvious and that's like another thing that I would say about Jung is that if you're approaching him from this perspective of, you know, like believing in the collective unconscious, believing in the archetypes or the shadow or what have you, then you're, you're not actually getting into the meat of what he was trying to get at, because this is all stuff that you can find within yourself very readily. You don't have to believe in it. Um, I think there's that famous like Jung quote uh, in that interview that he did, the, the televised one. Um, where he was asked if he believes in God and he says, I don't believe I know. And, and I mean, that touches on a bunch of stuff, especially with regard to the red book, but Jung did know God, you know what I mean? Like he had a direct experience of something that he would refer to as God. Um, and so I think that's like a crucial difference in terms of his sort of reactionaryism, I guess, <laughs> uh, against um, public calls to his like mystic direction. Well, this is the other thing that Young gets tarred with a lot is that people, yeah. you know, if he's not a goofy New Ager, well, then it's actually because he's a secret uh, fascist. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he's either he's either a goofy, wishy-washy hippie or no, actually, he's a, a secret Nazi wizard. And, you know, 
what's funny about that to me too is that um a lot of the actual traditionalists like the reactionary thinkers they hated young too because you know i remember like evelo writes that you know he thought that jungianism was completely aberrant because young believed that you know divine images could appear in the minds of the insane like young's whole mm. idea that you know the unconscious is um uh compensatory like that that the, the, the unconscious is yeah. you know trying to use symbols to to heal the psyche um and this is why mandalas would appear in the minds of insane people uh for the traditionalists they hated that idea because they're like you're you're saying that um th these perfect platonic ideas could make themselves known to people who are unworthy of them basically uh and jungianism yeah. is the exact opposite view of this uh, of the actual traditionalist reactionary view and young was always very adamant about the fact that you know he didn't care about metaphysics at least not in his actual you know, public work. He did not care right, about metaphysics. Right. The whole point of his methodology is that you were doing away with metaphysics and you were interpreting uh, the images of the psyche of the unconscious as images, as their own language. It is not, they don't necessarily represent um, any kind of uh, perfect spiritual reality that, you know, mystic warriors uh, of the uh, uh, fascist variety get to uh, uh, determine the validity of. Right. Well, no, I mean, like, so that is actually one thing that has always, um, I, I don't want to say bothered me, but like tripped me up in reading his work is you're right. He is uh, very direct about not being interested in metaphysics. And maybe th that is kind of in the direction of saying, I'm not interested in like an objective metaphysics. Um, but then he goes around and, and actually like makes a lot of things that have massive metaphysical implications especially around his work with like the archetype synchronicity and sort of even the differentiation between like the psyche and psychic material versus the physical material like that is on some level you can kind of expand that out to be a very metaphysical claim um and so I have to imagine you know sometimes when I'm reading him I'll have to go back and look at a word that he is using and read it in context. He often uses the word autistic uh, and the word autistic or autism in his time meant something very different uh, from what it means today. And so like, I, I actually don't know. I don't know what like the word metaphysical or metaphysics would have meant in his time period. But I think that what he's like kind of more getting at is, is uh, making a claim about like the nature of, let's say like a religious plane beyond the material or not if that makes any sense at all like I, I i'm very confused as to the way in which he is using that word because it just seems so um n not in line with what you can get from his work but i also I, might I, be reading his work wrong <laughs> i don't know no i think the difference is is that you're reading it through the red book the red yeah, book is totally. is the beginning and not the end whereas it, for for your parents and then i guess i was on the cusp of this it, it was like you you know i started off with the basic stuff you know the the um the symbols of the collective unconscious or archetypes of the collective unconscious or right. uh, man in search of a soul or answer to job you know like the the, the kind of basic introduction young stuff and then so then when you get this this uh the, the the final revelation the the lotus sutra of Jungianism, the, <laughs> the the hidden the hidden document at the end 
and it's a, a purely apocalyptic doctrine in our book mm-hmm. in the in the proper sense of the words. The apocalypse means revelation, means a lifting of the veil, right? So right. the veil gets um, lifted, and we find out that you know behind Young the scientist the whole time was Young the mystic, and it's not that he was completely dishonest about this. I, I think it's that he tried to keep the two separate as much as possible so that he wouldn't turn into Rudolf Steiner or. Um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard or any of these sort of uh, modern day prophet figures who, you know, claim to have a, a fully functioning metaphysics that you're supposed to get behind, you know, or, or whatever. That yes. He, he doesn't want to do that. And the other thing is people always talk about Jung in relationship to Freud. And I think the other thing is when you see, when you read the Red Book, you see starkly the relationship between Jung and Nietzsche. Um, mm. there's even, there's even a little note in the red book that he wrote to himself where he's like, you're just trying to be Nietzsche. You're trying to be edgy with Nietzsche <laughs> yeah. and, and you're not doing it as well. Right. So even privately, he was like, he was like, I'm trying to do this overman stuff, but I'm also trying to be an objective scientist at the same time. Right. No, well, totally. And I mean, I think in, um, uh, I know that we were kind of in question as to whether this was going to be brought up, but like in Catafalque. There's definitely a lot of talk about uh, his relationship to the prophet archetype and whether that was something that he was going to allow himself to get kind of drawn into. And you're you're totally right that he does seem to have this sort of insecurity around what he was doing with the Red Book. And, and you know, there's a lot of talk about, like, why did he keep that secret, blah, blah, blah. But it does seem that he was deeply embarrassed by it. And that is something that has always kind of intrigued me because it's not I mean I don't know to my mind it's not actually something to be deeply embarrassed about um going back a little bit you were talking about kind of the difference between millennial gen z and boomer uh unions with regard to the to the red book and I actually very distinctly remember being you know whatever age I was when it came out I think it was was it published in 2009 I want to say could be wrong. It was 2006 when it was made public. And then I think, yeah, the actual editions of it started to come out in 2008, 2009, something like that. I, yeah. I, was, I was, I was, I was in high school. So, okay. So I remember when that came out, my mom had always been talking to me. She would like tell me these kind of tales about the red book and about like, there was a knowledge that he had kind of locked himself away and gone into this thing that was sort of almost like the fun Jungian question was whether Jung himself actually went insane or if he didn't go insane it's very like Hamlet like kind of uh surface level questioning you know around the red book but eventually it did become available and I remember being like a kid and telling my dad oh we have to get my mom the red book we have to get it and I like I had this whole mythology sort of built up around it uh, around this dude whose works I had never read because I was a child but who I kind of knew as this figure and this presence in our life. Um, and that I just knew that my mom had to have this work. And I remember I got it for her. I don't think she actually read it, which is so fascinating to me because um, looking back, I was trying to remember like, what was the first thing that I read by Jung? And it was the red book. That is like where my journey with him began. I, you know, and, and perhaps uh, arrogantly, right? Like <laughs> I did not know what I was reading when I read it. Um, nor do I still know what I'm reading half the time when I read it, but, um, that, that, that was kind of my starting place with him. And that was sort of the place from which I began to approach the rest of what he wrote. And so sort of that metaphysical background, but certainly the idea of taking the, um, inner subjective experience seriously as its own reality that is equal to that of the material reality all around us, um, was just embedded in my understanding of him from the get-go 
if that makes any sense at all. But no, you are the archetypal Zoomer Youngian. Like, you know, <laughs> you just like like I have this idea. The Zoomer Youngian is the is the the younger Youngian who starts with the Red Book. The Red Book is the beginning for them. Um, and you've just exactly described that. So you've described to a T what my idea of a Zoomer Youngian is. <laughs> You started, yeah. you started with the Red Book. And so everything you read is through the Red Book instead of the other way around. It wasn't something exactly. that pops up at the end for you. So it, it's it's your genesis instead of your revelations. And you're saying, well, you're reading it as a child doesn't understand it. And that's the only way you can read it. I'll never get to read it that way. Mm. That's how you're supposed to read it because you're supposed mm -hmm. to become a child again. You're supposed to become childlike um, in, in order to read it. Uh, correctly that young in order to write it had to force himself to be a child again um had to retreat from the world had to go you know uh play with rocks and um uh, basically regress as much as possible so that he could yeah. rediscover that part of himself in order to write that book so no this i mean this is funny because it's kind of like um <laughs> this, re this reaffirms some ideas i have about uh what, what the point of the red book was um can I actually right. quickly speak to that on like, Please. you, um, one of the things that's actually very interesting to me about what you just said is that, you know, like, there's a certain way to read the red book where certain things that he says make total sense. They're almost obvious, but from the adult mind, they don't make any sense at all. And like one of the passages that I'm thinking of also, it was mentioned in Catafalque, but I've spent a long time on this passage where he's talking to Philemon, his, his, um, I guess like spiritual guide, if I had to explain what that is, but he's talking to this person or this character within his psyche who plays a massive role in his inner psychic life, but really only gets one section within the red book, um, which is very interesting. And Philemon is essentially teaching him the, um, ways of magic. And one of the things that he says is like, you know, magic is just incomprehensible you can't understand it the more you try to understand it it's like it's not something for the rational mind and reading that as an adult um you start to get kind of caught up in these ideas and, and these like frameworks and like okay how do i abstractly comprehend the incomprehensible how do i kind of like create a mental model for that which is a very adult approach but the childlike approach right is is um it's almost self-centered or there's there's a sense of being the entire universe within just yourself because you're 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 very just like oh i'm the main character i'm a kid you know like everything that i see and experience exists because i'm there to see and experience it which is sort of this like subjective perspective that i think is needed to understand quite a bit of of what jung says and from that perspective the definition of magic um, within the Red Book makes total sense. It's like, oh, yeah, magic literally is just that which we cannot understand. That's what makes it magical. If we could understand it, then it would be technology, right? Like th there's a sense of looking at the word it would magic. Be science, right? Yeah. From the perspective of one's own subjectivity as opposed to trying to branch out into objectivity um, and then like kind of get around it that way i don't know if that makes any sense I, I always have a hard time articulating this like particular perspective but to call it childlike is i think very accurate well it's that um it always goes back to that peter carroll quote uh, magic works in practice not in theory mm -hmm. uh, you have you have to yes. like it's the 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 experience of the uh of the of the magical or the numinous or, or what have you it, it, it by definition can't be rational 
Um, right. And the, the funny thing is that the the tale of two youngs where there's Carl Jung trying to be a scientist and Carl Jung also, but also actually just kind of being a mystic um, and mm-hmm. trying to reconcile the two. And then you brought up catafalque. I, I I was going to I was going to try to wait on that one, but I'm glad you brought it up so that I don't have to. Um, I, <laughs> I did. Yeah. I I got obsessed with this book by Peter Kingsley. I tried to get many people to read it. I think you're the only person I was able to force to read it. Um, you, you were enough of a youngian. You're enough of a <laughs> of a, a red book pilled uh, Zoomer youngian that you, I could I could convince you to uh, put up with this very. Yikes book. That is how someone described it to me. They said it's the oh, most totally. yikes book they've ever read. And I was like, okay, that, that sounds cool to me. Um, I <laughs> the uh, Kingsley has a very frustrating way of writing because like, <laughs> I have this one point that I'm going to make and I will spend 500 pages to make that point. Um, uh, I don't know how else to put it, but but catafalque is a, a thing that that you put um, a casket on when you're mm-hmm. lying in state right it, it, and that's what he thinks our civilization is and I, and I think in a way that's what he thinks young is that young mm-hmm. is actually our epitaph mm-hmm. um that humanity has spiritually died and we're just sort of caving in now and this is sort of like where people think of young as self-help where people think of young as a new ager where people think of young as a comparative mythologist where people think of carl young right. as any of these any of these things that that that's all a facade that's all nonsense that what young actually is is um a herald of the apocalypse basically that he's that he, that actually he is a prophet but he's just sort of a prophet of um the spiritual death of man and it's the most bitter black pill i've ever <laughs> i've ever been exposed <laughs> to in my entire life and i'm i'm laughing but i'm not laughing because it's funny i'm laughing because i'm scared right because it's yeah, uh, totally. it's so contrary it's so contrary to how i ever thought of young and i hate to say it kingsley makes a very compelling argument Oh, oh, completely. And and for like people who have not read this book, um, I mean, just read it, I guess would be my <laughs> recommendation. But I think like if you are a little bit familiar with Jung, I think one of the things within the Jungian community that we have to ask ourselves, and I think that this book kind of drives at in some ways is that it's like, okay, well, clearly a lot of Jung's work was around like the masses and sort of this idea that if we're not going to be like, if we are going to find ourselves swept up in sort of these collective um, problems, then all we need to do is like, oh, we just need to individuate and we need to uh, find ourselves and in, in all of this stuff. And I think that the point that Katafalk makes that I think is great, and it's something that Jungians really need to hear is it's like, okay, well, who among you is actually individuated? Who among you has actually done this work? Are you not just taking these concepts and these ideas and applying them in a way that is kind of on a very shallow level helpful, but but like, have you actually encountered your shadow? And people like to say, yes, I, I have, you know, I've done dream work, I've done active imagination or whatever. And it's, you know, like, I think a lot of what Jung has called us to do or what his predominant frustration was is that you have these people who just like they're clinging to his concepts like they need the Jungian shadow in order to do shadow work in order to work with anything that he's talked about and he you you can tell when he talks to a lot of his followers and the recordings that we have of kind of like what he has said that he's almost shoving them away and being like no go do the work for yourself 
Um, because if you don't, then individuation is never going to occur. And if that, like, if none of you can do that, then we're doomed, essentially. Um, and, you know, you can see that I've, I've been, I'm working on a, a podcast for doing shadow work and kind of like shadow work in the sort of era of TikTok. And that brought me to this book, Meeting the Shadow, which is um, written by Connie Zweig. And it's actually the first time that the word shadow work was used. Uh, Jung never, he never said anything about shadow work, but there's this quote in it where they say that Jung was talking to Marie-Louis von Franz and that they were discussing, you know, what is shadow work? What is, what is this? What is that? And, and apparently he like kind of threw up his hands and was like, stop. Shadow work is just the whole unconscious or just shadow is the whole unconscious. And then the book goes on to say after that quote, you know, but of course he was joking and having read Catafalque and like kind of having this relationship to him where it's, it's clear that Jung was not joking half the time that people think he was joking. I went and found the original quote and it goes on to say, you people have forgotten how these things were discovered. And that is just a, 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 a quote from him that I think about all the time that the point is not his ideas it's how they were discovered and whether we ourselves are willing to go and discover these things for ourselves. If we're willing to almost encounter Jung and then put everything he has ever said away and just go there ourselves. And without that capacity, which I think Catafalque kind of argues is not ever going to happen. Um, yeah. We, we face a very apocalyptic scenario. Uh, two things. One, I, I, I'm, I've been talking about how you are you were the archetypal Zoomer Jungian, and you literally said uh -huh. shadow work in the age of TikTok, which is <laughs> that is that is the most Zoomer Jungian uh, uh, field you could possibly be in. But oh, totally. I'm reminded I'm reminded of that line, a shocking line in the Red Book, where he says, uh, "Don't believe the lies of the Christians. It's not enough to be a Christian; you now must become Christ." Um, mm -hmm. And that's kind of what kind of Falk is saying is it, it don't believe the lies of the Jungians. It's not enough to be a Jungian. You have to become Carl Jung. Um, but you guys yes. don't want to do that. And the thing that sticks out to me the most uh, in Catafalque is this idea of don't identify with the common man. Mm -hmm. um, if you identify with a common man, you'll you'll basically succumb to a kind of slave morality. And it doesn't matter under what guise you do it. Um it, it, there's right wing and left wing versions of this oh shucks, I'm just the common man. Uh right guy I, I, i'm just or i'm just a common woman even i'm just the common this i'm the common that um mm. we, we love this and we love seeing it in our politicians and celebrities when they do the ah shucks i'm just like everybody else even when we know that they aren't and what's totally. funny to me is the the tension in young between being a mystic and being a scientist um that now exists in everybody i think i don't think that that was unique to carl young himself but now the common man loves to identify as being a scientist and being reasonable and being um, data-driven and being um, uh, objective and, all, and, and these sorts of things. And yet, what do people spend all their time doing? Uh, they spend their time in archetypal fantasies, whether it's in video games or movies. Like, look at the movies that are the most popular right now. Uh, something that I said at the very beginning of this I... podcast, people's, people's repressed power fantasies are all being projected into... Uh, these superhero movies, endless superhero movies and endless video games. And look at the video games that are the most popular. They're always the ones that are about fantasy worlds, whether it's Zelda or Morrowind mm -hmm. or whatever that one that just came out recently that all my dude bro friends are playing. It's all it's all swords and sorcery. And it's almost like 
if I really want to get wienery here, it's almost like a substitute red book. It's almost like a substitute mythology that you can say, oh, you can have your cake and eat it too. And be like, well, I'm a reasonable scientific guy. I just spend all of my time in this fake fantasy world that's filled with all these archetypal symbols, but it's just a game. It's just a dopamine high. Um, I'm not obsessing over this stuff because there's some spiritual need I have to actually... um, be intimate with these with these archetypes be intimate with the spirit of the depths no it's just i'm just playing a game i'm just playing a game i'm not doing anything weird okay me obsessing over dungeons and dragons isn't me doing some weird wizard stuff it's it's just me having some fun because i'm the common man and i'm a scientist yeah absolutely and i think that a lot of that like literally what you just described um is very much informed by a spiritual wounding or or almost like a religious trauma um i hate using the word trauma because I think that that word kind of almost fundamentally does not mean anything anymore, but it's been the, doinked. It's, it's been <laughs> doinked. As I like to say. It's been fully in, doinked. I know I had to use the word trauma earlier today and I was like, <laughs> I was like, Ugh, felt like sick to my stomach just having to say it. But sometimes, yeah, you, just like sometimes you have to say problematic, you, even yeah. though that word has also been fully doinked. Exactly. Well, okay. So insofar as trauma, and this is kind of like really my understanding of it is, is a catastrophic um shifting of your world picture or world puzzle and i like talk about this in my podcast a little bit but trauma is the experience that you have that forces all of your little other experiences your whole kind of sense of place sense of world sense of reality has to shift to accommodate this new kind of it's like it's like a puzzle where all of a sudden you have this random ass piece that doesn't fit anywhere and so you have to move everything around and you have these fissures and lines and sort of gaps in your picture of the world and that's where anxiety and existential dread can kind of creep in and so you find yourselves or you find yourself acting in very weird ways to avoid these kind of fissures in your world picture Um, and so that's my definition of trauma but I, I think that for people who grew up and there's now more and more of them every day um in like a sort of spiritually and religiously dead but still dogmatic household um and and we're kind of raised with like a particular religion and then you know somewhere between like the ages of 11 and like 16 they realized that everything their parents were saying was just bullshit you know like oh I found out Santa Claus wasn't real well you know that's messed up and I'm going to define myself entirely against sort of this religious attitude and often when I'm talking about Jung or talking about kind of any of these concepts with people like that they they just get rejecting of anything that could possibly be on the plane of the spiritual or the meaningful. Um, and then of course, just like you're saying, they they have to channel that urge for the numinous, that urge for something beyond kind of the material plane into story and narrative and movies and, you know, kind of atmospheres and vibes that are evoked through the music that we listen to and so on and so forth. But the real thing, you know, I think the challenge that Jung poses and also kind of solves, but only if you're in right relationship to him, is that in order to have meaning at all, um, you have to acknowledge the idea of there being two planes of existence, right? There's like the material world, and then there has to be a world just beyond that. And so that's what religion used to be, is like a heaven or a hell or some other plane that the material world can then gesture to. And it's, it's like when you watch a movie, you understand that what you're seeing is is physically there. It's just like the narrative of the movie and the scenes and whatnot, but that 
there's also a thematic level to the movie that is not what you're seeing, but it's what the movie is gesturing towards. It's like, okay, they used a blue filter here. That's supposed to mean something. And so you have those two levels of existence, but people with this sort of religious wounding, it's like the second plane of existence they thought was there just isn't there. And so they are afraid of anything that suggests that there's a second plane to existence, like a second plane that the material world could be gesturing toward if that makes sense. And the only safe way to explore that is through um, art, really, right now. Art is our kind of last real, like it's a secular spirituality. And I'm using art very broadly here to refer to anything from like Marvel movies to Criterion Collection stuff. But you you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, James Hillman, he talks about how nostalgia has become the, the underworld for the modern man. That's your way. Yes. That's your way of, yep. your way of um, uh, communing with the dead and all is how, how much of this art, how much of this stuff is, is endlessly uh, recycled uh, nostalgia or or vintage mm-hmm. or it's always like the, the, the past was better. And if only we could make the past new again. Um, but even stuff with like vaporwave, um, <laughs> which yes. I where it's like I'm going to start creating past that never existed and i know never existed um but at least i i I can enjoy them privately um which becomes its own kind of how to put it its own kind of chthonic thing um Mm -hmm. something that i always wonder about is like would would young or even freud i mean would they be horrified by today's media landscape or would they be like (laughs) yeah this is more or less what i thought would happen um, I, I even wonder, like, in, in Ion, which I want to talk a little bit about, in uh-huh. Ion, one of Young's last works, and probably one of his most disturbing when you actually get into it, uh, he, he talks about how, you know, monasticism, would be, which is started by Christianity, becomes this really important aspect of the, the Western psyche. And I often, I, I point out a couple of times on this show, there is a kind of weird neo monasticism i call them monks of desire like people who drop out of society and just play video games or just become addicted to their phones or even just become like uh, addicted to porn or whatever just uh, computer troglodytes basically um the terminally online right. and i say this with no condescension because i too am terminally online but um <laughs> everyone has sort of become this monk who is attached to um images right an image machine it's Mm -hmm. it is almost like a modern form of monasticism but it's like an inverted monasticism i wonder if young would look at that and be like yeah this is how you know that we're entering um we're entering this new dark post-human age uh because even the monks today are are um are post-conscious i guess they're they're monks of post-consciousness instead of instead of um trying to find some inner enlightenment or nirvana or or uh, spiritual salvation it's sort of like you become a monk who tries to obliterate your 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 psyche through images not tries to understand the images yeah no 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 i i <laughs> could very much see that and i mean i think that kind of speaks to i've been really trying to put words going back to tiktok it, um whenever i think about that app i have this sort of image of my head of like a million different images kind of flying around and just like sounds and noises getting cut off and and reappearing and just like it feels I guess this is appropriate for this podcast but like schizophrenic in a way like there's just so much sound and noise that nothing still or nothing silent can occur 
and um, which is, I guess, kind of almost like the opposite, like you were saying of monasticism in, in terms of like, when you think about that, when you think about being a monk, you think about sitting in silence for an extended period of time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's almost completely the opposite. It's like, to what extent can we drown out that silence? To what extent can we um, overcrowd our mind with images to which we have no direct connection? Like, there's no, these images are not evocative of anything except for themselves, if that makes any sense at all. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure that I have like a lot to add to that point, but I think it's a very interesting one. Well, um, we've we've made it all this time without talking about Jordan Peterson. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? Because sure. I think something something that's been dizzying to me is yes. that Young has come to be associated not with like necessarily <laughs> not like necessarily like extreme right because there were people who accused him of Nazism, but like mm -hmm. he's been now he's like being associated with like basic bitch boomer conservatism because of Jordan Peterson. Uh, and the funny thing is, like, one, I don't really think Jordan Peterson is conservative. I think he was sort of like um, actually a pretty middle of the road guy who was kind of pushed into being a conservative icon or propelled to, I just to, had this to discussion. be one. Yeah, totally. And, and, and I don't young was always associated, like I said, with with hippies, with countercultural types. I mean, James Hillman was like pro free love. And he right. thought that that was like the the Western psyche healing itself from Christian Puritanism, you know, stuff that is not very conservative or trad. Um, right. There was a lot of people who read Young in this way, too. And so seeing Young being turned into self-help um, or being some sort of like icon of of traditionalism is, is just kind of a funny turn. I don't want to blame Joseph Campbell, but... I feel like Joseph Campbell is the one who popularized the idea that Jungianism is all about us going on a hero hero's journey, a hero's mm -hmm. quest. And the hero's quest has these certain, you know, uh, these 12 steps to the hero quest or whatever. And <laughs> right. then, then you become a hero and then you've fulfilled your life and you've won the video game and, you know, this sort of thing. And I don't blame him necessarily, but it's like there are other archetypes other than the hero. There are other quests that people can go on and other directions people can go. And it doesn't have to be this kind of uh, uh, cookie cutter Zelda psychology. Yeah, no, totally. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that we've lost touch with in our culture is that there's anything worth doing that does not um, enhance your capacity to be a productive member of society who gets the things that you want. And so like a, a while ago, I kind of mentioned my parents' involvement in sort of the human potential self-development kind of like movement of uh, particularly the 80s. Um, and I think that they had probably a, a less shallow approach to it, but there was this idea and you can see this, like you can see the threads of this appearing on TikTok. It's certainly on, um, in, within the way that Jordan Peterson talks about it, but the, this idea that the inner work is worthwhile because you go in there and you rewire yourself to be a more, um, functional machine. I mean, that's really what it is. Like, no one wants to say that. It's like, oh, no, I want to have more meaning in my life. And it's like, yeah, no, but to what end? And a lot of what Jung did, a lot of what his work was kind of originally aimed toward were things that um, could not possibly be in the ego's interest, right? So like really get into a Jungian um, kind of framework is to say that my ego is going to be in the service of the greater self. And that is probably going to mean that I don't be productive, right? Like I don't um, have this sort of efficient uh, 
relationship to the world around me. I'm probably just going to go live in a castle by a lake. Right. And so, you know, I think with regard to Jordan Peterson, oh, oh God, there's like so much I could say about him specifically. I think that he, well, first of all, I mean, he's clearly like acting out of some sort of archetypal inflation in his role right now. Like that is very clear. And I feel kind of shitty saying that because I don't like using union terms to like to you want to hurl them at people people. yeah yeah i mean most people it's what freudians do you know freudians kind of sit there and they're like oh it's projection and or you know whatever the hell they say but um i don't like using his terms like that because it just feels very um ego driven frankly but with regard to jordan peterson i would say absolutely you're right i think that he was sort of a middle of the line like i mean I would consider him kind of right-leaning, but like certainly just within the center there, um, certainly not further right than some of like my family members and stuff, like not somebody who would be appalling in that regard. And I think that he just blew up and couldn't like something in his psyche activated and he couldn't take it clearly. You know what I mean? Um, And so, I mean, the other thing about Jordan Peterson that I would say is that so much of his background relates to, uh, from the very get-go, he was very interested in ideology and how ideology could kind of take over um, a collective and lead them into true evil. And so I think that he very much sees himself as sort of this like warrior or hero archetype, kind of like you were getting at, that is sort of using his sword of... Um, I don't know that he would call it rationality. I don't know how tied he is to the idea of rationality, but sort of discrimination. It's got to be the sort of truth. You know, it's the sort of truth. that is Truth, yes, exactly. (laughs) Flaming sort of truth that will protect us (laughs) from the gulag. They're they're trying to put us in the gulag and Jordan Peterson is is the angel of the Lord and he has the flaming sort of truth to uh, protect us. And I think that he's willing to ally himself with whoever I think he's willing to say whatever and then I think he even has gone so far as to delude himself into thinking that he believes what he is saying because he can't step out of this archetype he can no longer turn around and look at himself as anything other than this sort of savior figure and um you know it's really sad like I completely disagree with this man on pretty much every political standpoint but I I keep very close track of him because he is, to your point, one of the only public figures talking about um, Jungian anything in, in a way yeah. that might reach somebody in my generation. And unless I, I keep bringing up TikTok, I, that, that is actually something that like is very much on my mind is that so many of the people I know who know who Carl Jung is know it because they've been on like shadow talk. But <laughs> that's aside from the point. Well, <laughs> I, I remember, I remember the, uh, like, I can't remember where I read it on the internet because it's all blur. But I just remember there yeah. was somebody commenting on some Jordan Peterson post. And there was this this kid who was just irate. He was like, why are all these conservatives supporting Jordan Peterson? He's a youngian. Carl Young was a Gnostic. He was a Gnostic heretic, you idiots. And I was kind of like, <laughs> oh, you're kind of right, actually. I mean, it kind of doesn't really make sense that the, the, all these Christian people are like standing Jordan Peterson. No, well, okay. So the other thing that I would say is I, I literally have read, I think everything that this man has ever publicly written aside from like his, I don't know, like Ooh, actual, Peterson? 
Yeah. Yes. Oh, I have. You're more of a but, Peterson stand than I am. No, no, I am not. But, <laughs> but I have read it because, you know, I mean, I think especially there was this period of time where he was kind of coming into the like cultural yeah. consciousness prior to, uh, you know, his ascension into the halls of right wing fame um, that, you know, like he, he just was talking about stuff that I knew about. And I, uh, like I kind of mentioned, was living in this world where I knew so much about kind of Jungian psychology and this Jungian perspective, and no one around me had ever heard of that before or like knew Mm. what the hell I was talking about. And so all of a sudden people are talking about this professor who is referencing Jung. And so I just got really interested in like where he was going to take it. The other thing, the one compliment that I will pay Peterson is that he does a very, very good job of connecting um, kind of cognitive science um, and neuroscience and current psychological research to mm. what Jung says. Like he creates a very That's... good academic background or foundation. I, um, I, I I remember when he was he was getting big and someone was trying to tell me that he's going to be the new voice of the far right, and I was like, and he's from Canada? What the fuck? And so I watched <laughs> a bunch of his I watched a bunch of his lectures on YouTube. And I was like, this is the most basic, like Joseph Campbell, comparative yeah. mythology, like like self-help shit that you would say to an 18-year-old version of this stuff possible. And my, my whole thing has always been like the fact that this guy became the center of so much controversy and became this massive figure. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't think it's so much that he inflated himself as he was inflated just by circumstance. Um, oh yeah totally yes i i I can't believe i still can't believe i mean i feel like rogue marcus has said this a million times on this podcast but i just i still can't believe that he became the the like center of our culture war that he did and as i've always said the people who the people who like love him and the people who hate him they all sort of put their daddy issues on display on this point i'll be very it's all it's like the people who are angry at him when Jordan Peterson says, you know, clean your room, that's his whole philosophy, clean your room. Um, and there's people who are like, yes, I waited my whole life. I've waited my whole life for my boomer parents to tell me to clean my room and they never did. <laughs> and now that you have, I can finally have meaning back in my life. I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> that is some weird daddy issues. But then the people who are like, did this motherfucker just tell me to clean my room? He is literally Hitler. He is lit. This is the third Reich handmaiden's tale patriarchy where this white man thinks he can tell me to clean my room. Like, I'm like, eh, that's also, that's also some weird issues. Yeah, no, I mean, the whole thing is just, it's just fucked. It's like, like, I cannot begin to untangle and like, I know so much about him. And I I just, you're right. Like the fact that he ascended to the position that he did, like, yeah, I guess he has some, um, like, conservative it's not even conservative it's just really true traditional uh but like even not quite that it's just so funny some of the stuff he says it's just like you should have sex with your wife you know like you should to your point clean your room like it's i can't like there's people the what's disturbing what's always been disturbing to me about jordan peterson isn't jordan peterson himself um, mm-hmm. I agree with you that like he clearly was inflated and couldn't handle it and went bonkers. Um, but uh, it's also it's like how I hate to get all we are a society. We live in a society. But um, mm-hmm. like w- why how did we get to the point where uh, I-, I have to have the big other come tell me to have sex with my wife? Otherwise, I can't <laughs> function as a human being or I'm going to have the big other come and tell me to have sex with my wife, I'm going to get angry about it. It's just, it's very weird. I just think that he's the kind of perfect, 
it was one thing I really like, love about Jordan Peterson. He is sort of the perfect uh, lens for where we are at culturally. Like he is the Overton window or something like that. There, there's some yeah. that the amount of energy and time that has been spent on this man is kind of remarkable. I don't know if you ever heard of the movie Being There. No, I have not. Okay, I swear. Okay, this is for everybody, especially Zoomer youngians who I hopefully hopefully will be listening. Um, this goes especially for Zoomer youngians, but also everybody <laughs> else. This is required viewing. You need to watch Being There. If you watch Being There and you and you watch Being There as a parable of Jordan Peterson, um, and not just Jordan Peterson, but just kind of like where (laughs) where society is at, I promise you, it will be very rewarding. You're telling me you've read everything, every public statement Jordan Peterson has made. I think you should watch Being There. I think you'll get something out of it. Well, okay. I, I mean, I will absolutely, to be clear, it's not every public statement, it's just his books. Like I've read like his like published work, but. Um, oh, every published work. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, like, I misheard that. I thought but, I, I, I thought you were telling me you had like the a Jordan Peterson feed that you were looking at every day. <laughs> Google alerts on Jordan Peterson. Yeah, no, no, no. Actually, um, I think my issue was that I was not reading what he was like in the moment saying online. I was mm, just reading his okay. work. I was like, oh, this is pretty benign. And then I like go online and he's just. He well, he has a he he's very good at talking himself into holes sometimes, or like not taking the easy way out. He he'll make he'll he'll get himself he'll get himself in a pickle, and for whatever reason, he won't take the easy way out or say or say the thing that could obviously get him out of trouble. He'll he'll keep digging the hole for some reason. Oh no, because well, he's he's John Proctor. He has to say the truth. He has to be like because it is my name, you know, like like he that that's part of the the um complex for him is is that he has to just keep going. Because he's not going to yield to the the ideologues who are trying to silence him. <laughs> um, but yes. Well, but then the other thing is, is uh, maybe the uh, hopefully try to bring this full circle. There's also with 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 Jordan Peterson and with the people who he's arguing with, the arguments usually devolve into science and data. Mm-hmm. And you see this constantly in how conservatives and liberals argue with each other now too, where it's like everyone tries to identify as the common man, and the common man. Uh, yep. is also a scientist because I, you know, I just trust the data. I just, I'm just about facts and logic. Um, even the way, even the way like uh, all this like YouTube discourse goes down or all these compilations where it's like uh, calmly and rationally dismantles, uh, destroys yep. with nothing but facts, you know, this type of stuff. It's always people trying to present themselves as I am the reasonable person. Uh, I just go by facts and data because I'm just an Oshucks normal person. Um, and I think kind of part of people's how to put it, revolt against the unconscious, why people have gotten so embittered towards this type of stuff is because the unconscious so often, it doesn't, it's not just that it comes to you in an irrational way, that, you know, dreams Mm -hmm. are a deeply irrational thing to experience. It's that usually the actual message of the dream is contrary to what your rational ego wants. And throughout my life, I've heard people say like, you know, uh, it's not just that they don't like the idea of dream interpretation, actually offended by it. Um, I even had a psychology yeah. professor who told me that, you know, he started the class by saying, I'm not a Freudian. I'm not a Jungian. We don't discuss any of those ideas. I don't care about any of this unconscious stuff. You know, we are strict behaviorists, um, behavioralists here. And, you know, that is how we solve psychological problems because I'm just a normal, shucks scientist type of guy. Um, and uh, where was I going with this? So <laughs> the, the point here being the, the the revolt against the unconscious the 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 distaste that people have with it um it, it is precisely because there's no easy rational way to quantify it and that's what makes 
I think that's what ends up making this stuff so dangerous is that you can have we, we, we could be entering into this kind of age of the unconsciousness, which is what I kind of think the that ion is about, that mm-hmm. we're going to go beyond uh, this idea of the rational human um, and, and we're going to become atheists. We're going to become tired of the idea of God, but that we're also going to become tired of the idea of man, uh, which mm-hmm. I think is what you find in yes. Nietzsche. And I can see why this stuff, when you start to look into this abyss, why it can drive people nuts. Because you're going to live in a world of people who all are claiming that they're they're rational, logical people who are also eviscerating their own relationship to their own psyche um, mm-hmm. in an attempt to become more logical, more rational, more algorithmic. And it, it really is like you're looking into a future of Borg people um, and they don't even have to be plugged into a machine to to think like machines. Totally. Well, actually, OK, quick question. Have you. Have you ever encountered Federico Campagna or like Technique and Magic, Prophetic Culture, anything like that? Because I would recommend that if you haven't. No, I'm not familiar with this. Okay. So th- th- this is a thinker who um, like just blew my mind. I read him actually like kind of alongside Catafalque and they they just pair so well together precisely because of like exactly what you're talking about, this sort of need to cling to the rational way of looking at things, the skeptical in some ways way of looking at things, because um, I, and I think the point that both of these books are making is that we have um, lost our ability to regard as real that which we cannot explain or put into language or rationalize. Right. And so a lot of the work that I personally do is in this realm of um, what Federico Campania calls the ineffable. And I have totally just stolen that word because it's the best word ever, but referring to that which cannot be captured in language. Um, And he kind of has this way of looking at our culture, which suggests that like, yeah, we we need language. We need to be able to capture in language um, what's around us. We need to be able to make a, a truth statement around it because the only thing that we regard to be real is that which is true but there are many things that are real that you can't actually say anything about because they kind of exist out of any form of linguistic or rational framework and so to bring a Jungian kind of perspective that to that is to suggest that well okay anything that is outside of the rational is then going to go into the unconscious and just absolutely wreak havoc because we don't know what to do with it we don't know how to acknowledge it um and that's what's going to get projected out onto other people. I think you're already seeing this with like the the primary battleground being like, oh, this person's being irrational. This person's being irrational. They're just being um, ideologically captured, right? Like we're we're very much in already this sort of war of who can be the most rational, the most scientific, the most kind of like aligned with this very abstract idea of truth. Um, and that that is going to cause a problem. So anyway, Technic and Magic, if I can recommend it both to you and to anyone listening to this, is, is sort of positioning an alternative um, metaphysical framework for looking at reality such that we can understand reality to be outside that which we can capture in language, which is also very clearly what Peter Kingsley is getting at in Catafalque and literally his book, Reality. Um, and so that is like where a lot of my work is going in the direction of, because we need to be able to see it to be real in order to work with it, right? Um, and you know, if we can't, then yes, that does have very apocalyptic uh, implications in my mind, for sure. You know, I actually had to build a catafalque this last this winter. Wait, really? <laughs> yeah, 
I our 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 cat died. Um, it was a cat that I had had since I was like in high school, I think. Uh, a very old cat, you know. And Wait, died. when did your cat die? Mm, I don't know. All the months blend together because it was it was winter. It was during a blizzard. Um, it was too it was too cold to bury the cat. I mean, you couldn't dig through the earth. So yeah. Um, and then we didn't. I didn't want the cat to um, start to decay in the house. Uh, right. So I built a little catafalque out of random objects in the garage and had like the made a little tomb for the cat to to, to lay in state. Um, and I remember I was building, I was like, I don't know, it, it felt like it had some weird apocalyptic um, <laughs> implication because of, because I'd been, you know, I'd read this book, Catafalque. Obviously, I didn't never, I'd never heard of the word Catafalque before I'd read this book. Neither did um, I, yeah. This idea of like the, what what you put the, the, the coffin on top of. Anyway, that's just a little tangent. Um, RIP, Miss Kitty. Uh, I wanted to ask you about maybe practical Jungianism, because this is something yeah. that I think people get they say, okay, fine. You have all these weird spiritual ideas and you, you write about all these mythologies and you, you're, you're writing your dreams down and you're, you're willing to engage, uh, with the mysterious and numinous. Okay. That's all great. But like, what am I actually supposed to do on a day-to-day basis to, um, to not necessarily make myself a more productive person, but to actually do a, uh, individualization. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, are a million different ways to answer that. I think that, you know, like certainly in Jung's pathway, as he outlines it, um, the first step is, is technically considered to be work with the shadow, integrating the shadow. Um, and that's all fine and good, but part of that involves knowing what the shadow actually is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have really noticed in the way that shadow work is talked about online is that it seems to at once be a, um, it's, it's described as sort of like an alternative tool to use within your trauma work. And we've already talked about trauma becoming this sort of pervasive approach to things, but it's also being used a lot in regard to like manifestation and like the manifestation mm. circles are kind of like, oh yeah, you have to do shadow work in order to work through the part of yourself that doesn't feel like it deserves the thing that you're trying to manifest or whatever. Um, oh, shadow it- work so you can do law of attraction stuff. Yes, exactly. All right. um, I know, I know. <laughs> um, if we're making in- fun of people for being better office workers, uh, trying to use the the hero's journey to be better office workers, I mean, I don't know about using shadow work to be better manifestors. I, I, is that is that an improvement? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I, it's it's just it's it's the wrong term maybe applied to like something that would be helpful work for anybody to do. Yeah. Certainly, if you feel that you're undeserving of something like. Sure, interrogate that. Maybe that even is shadow work to some extent, but the the primary um, misunderstanding that's happening here is that people always think that shadow work is related to your inner child. So if you're looking online at um, how to do shadow work, like largely you're going to find a bunch of resources that are uh, journal related or journal prompt related. It's like, Ooh, write down, you know, imagine the person who abused you as a kid and and Mm -hmm. they're all chained up and you can say whatever you want to say to them. What do you say? Or like, when was the first time you felt like running away from home? It's very inner child driven. And so I think people just have this misconception around it that it's like, okay, shadow work is going and healing the inner child. And that sounds like Dianetics is the funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what Dianetics does. It says keep going back in, in time until you find the original negative memory. And then I, right. I think what's so frustrating about that, because 
shadow and shadow work has been massively doinked. Um, yeah. And people, when people talk about shadow work, the shadow is usually the thing that you really don't want to the point where you can't even be aware of it. So it's like, well, do shadow work so that you feel more deserving. Well, I, maybe the real shadow work would be like, why is it that you are undeserving? Exactly. Um, yes. That's something that you, that's something that you're almost never going to hear uh, out of some, your average new ager's mouth is, well, maybe there's a reason you really don't deserve it. Cause maybe you're, you, maybe you've been doinking really hard in life. Um, and it's, this isn't just an issue of right. getting in touch with your inner child. Yeah. So, so, and that, that is one thing that I would probably say is that, you know, sure. The inner child work is th that can be shadow work. Like, I, like, I don't want to gate keep girl boss shadow work, but like, um, <laughs> it's you know, been, it, well, it's been fully gate kept and girl boss lately. Is yeah. what it's like to me. <laughs> um, but there is an element that is inner child like, and so, you know, what I would caution to people is that if you feel like you are actively still working through trauma, whatever the fuck that means, um, or inner child work. If you're still working with the inner child, I really like Robert Bly's um, sort of metaphor for, for shadow work, which is that, you know, throughout the course of your life, you're stuffing parts of you into this bag that you have to drag mm -hmm. behind you. And so shadow work is really like kind of reopening the bag and like coaxing these repressed things um, and, and often compensatory things back out of the bag. But if you're working with the inner child, if you're bringing the inner child back, then you are, first of all, necessarily taking on the perspective or the uh, persona of like the daycare worker who is like kind of giving a big hug to the bullied child in the corner. But also, you know, as daycare worker with the inner child, if you're at the same time trying to coax out the monster or God forbid the pedophile out of the bag, then that is self-abuse. And so it's like, okay, yeah, if you are stuck in inner child work, finish that up a little bit or at least be able to compartmentalize it because what else is in the bag is not just, what uh, your inner child should see I, so I, I recently listened to a lecture by um hellman about the inner child that i thought was really good uh mm -hmm. where it was i'm gonna butcher it but the gist of it was the old the old way of dealing with the inner child is basically you just discipline and abuse that inner child uh, into non-existence um, yep. And maybe that's the way things needed to be in the old days. And then uh, the boomers got obsessed with this idea of like letting the inner child out and basically letting the inner child run wild, treating your inner child like a like a starseed indigo child or something, right? Letting mm -hmm. it do whatever it wants. Um, and then he sort of talks about, well, no, the best thing you can do is uh, you make a deal with your inner child. You know, you make a place for your inner child. You're, you're kind to your inner child, but you don't let your inner child take over your life. And I, I like that take too, but I would say today, I mean, my frustration, and maybe this is a very millennial thing uh, for me, but it's like, fucking the inner child, we live in an inner child. We let the inner yes. child out like 50 years ago and it took over society. And now everybody's in a, a fucking inner child. Everybody's an outer child. <laughs> put the yeah. fucking, put the inner child, put the outer child back in. That's because like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's fucking, it's maddening that anyone is still talking about inner child. Everyone's a fucking inner child now. I can't escape the inner child. Um, yeah. in, I, mean, I was going to say I'm deep inside the child, but that's, you know, I'm, I don't want to get. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's a, no, you're completely right about that. And I think also like there's a, an extent to which things have shifted, not just from like, let the inner child out, but like, and, and let it play and blah, blah, blah. But the narrative today is that your inner child has been, like critically wounded and stunted and so what your job is especially through trauma work like this is i think like the fundamental uh like metaphor or um framework of how we understand trauma today is something bad happened to you as a kid 
And so now you have to go back to whoever you were when that happened and, and fix it and give it a big hug and a little kiss on the forehead and say, it's okay, sweetie. And because this thing happened to you at that age, you have not reached your full potential. So you have to go back, get the inner child, heal them, fix them so that you can reach your full potential so that you can continue to grow. Which is um, and itself just, childish. Yeah, it, exactly. Like there's just this idea. Which is that a childish way of, I mean, that. I, yeah. just, I hate that stuff. I really hate that stuff. That's the worst because I don't, yeah. the idea that, and there's another thing Hillman talks about is he says like your inner child has nothing to do with your actual literal childhood. Right. Um, I think that's probably totally. the best point he makes. He's like the inner, the inner child or the, the, the child is an archetype of things that are new and, right. of, you know, of, of, or of being a fool and letting yourself be, you know, like fall in love with, with, with new things in a new way. It's not, you shouldn't connect it. You shouldn't do the Scientology thing and literally connect it to, you know, all past events in your life that you have to um, uh, deconstruct or, or, or regress backwards into in order to free yourself from the body thetans. Um, it, it's funny. That is actually just Scientology, that take on the inner child. <laughs> it is like almost <laughs> yeah. exactly Scientology. Totally. Um, so that, that whatever that stuff drives me nuts. But I mean, what would what would you say to somebody if someone we're going to use the doinked word again? If someone was like, "How can I apply maybe some Jungian ideas to deal with some personal trauma?" or or you know, if if, if, I, if I'm trying to individuate, I'm trying to work with the archetypes, I'm trying to understand my dreams better. I mean, what what is some the most practical advice you could give them. I hate to force you to be a scientist, but. No, well, I mean, I think it's, it's um, a, a very valid question. And, and I guess what I would say is that this is very cynical of me, what I'm about to say um, yes. <laughs> is that I don't think actually Jungian depth psychology in the way that it is traditionally, or maybe has even been traditionally practiced is like even applicable anymore and um i mean it, it's not that it isn't applicable it's just that like like this thing that i've talked about with the trauma narrative i don't think that's just like that's not just a grievance for me that is something that i have noticed in the tapestry of the culture and what's really interesting is if you go back and you look at jung and what he says about the shadow literally what he says is that this work is relatively easy and that really caught me off guard because when I think about shadow, I think about just shit that would be like the depths of what shadow work can be are, it can be soul destroying. Right. And so to see kind of the originator of this idea, just be like, yeah, it's like relatively easy. The hard work is the enema and the animus and going you know, further beyond that. I was sort of like, well, damn, what is wrong with us that that would be so hard? And so, I mean, honestly, I don't like, I think that there's pre-work before you approach Jung. I think the pre-work is that you, A, just start to take your psychic reality as actually being reality. Um, and this is something that I like talk about just a bunch on my podcast. It's almost the focus of my podcast is being able to acknowledge your subjective experience as being equally real to the material world around you. Um, and, and just like having that shift is like the first thing that you need to have in order to work with this, because if you don't have that shift, you're going to approach union concepts as abstractions or as like a religious replacement or, you know, or, or, or you're not going to have a direct experience with them. And so you have to learn how to have a direct experience with your psyche through paying attention to your dreams, certainly, but also through just like paying attention in the moment of every, uh, subjective experience that you have, like 
what does the atmosphere around me feel like? What am I thinking? What do I think, but I'm not really aware that I'm thinking just getting uh, like attuned to that um, before you start this work. And then the second thing I would say is that honestly, we deeply need, and this is gonna sound so new age, but I, I don't mean it in a new age way is that you need to actually cultivate um, a deep sense of inner authority and unconditional love for yourself. And, and that, that doesn't mean like love and light, unconditional love, but you actually have to be able to tap into a part of yourself that can accept the worst and still go on living. And I think that a lot of us don't actually have that capacity, maybe even in a way that that wasn't true of Jung in his day and age. But if you are doing deep shadow work, if you are doing deep dream work, you really run the risk of approaching these things either from the perspective of an abstract theoretical framework, which is going to obscure the actual work itself, or from the ego perspective, which is likely to um, just be obliterated by some of the content there. So yeah, I, I would just say like there's there's work that I think most people in certainly my generation have to do before they can approach this. Um, and then from there, there's a bunch of like kind of followers of Jung who have some insight. I mean, I know that there's a really good and easy um, uh, uh, book, Inner Work, I think is by Johnson. Yeah, Robert Johnson, um, that a lot of people find to be a really good starting place for this. But I don't know. That, that's a long answer, but that's kind of the best I can do with that. I, that was a very good answer. You you you, you did more than your best. Um, okay. There's a there's a dream that Carl Jung talks about in Ion, um, where he he had it when he was a young man, and uh, he, he's going through um I believe a forest, and he finds a pond with a jellyfish in it, and he decides that the jellyfish represents science. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how he needs to follow this, the, the path of the scientist. Um, but ironically, you know, he talks about now how the jellyfish is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's something that can live in water, but it, it, it has an, it, its inner poison is fire. And the people in um, medieval times and ancient times, they, they saw that as being, um, having some spiritual relevance that this jellyfish contains uh, uh, a type of fire within it, despite the fact that it lives in water. So the symbol of science that he followed through his whole life um, ends up becoming a symbol of mysticism mm -hmm. um, when he grows older. And what's funny is that he talks about that dream in his earlier works, but he says that it's one of his patients. He doesn't say that it's his, um, which opens up the question to, was he lying before or was he lying later? Was it, was it actually his dream that he didn't, he wasn't ready to tell people it was his dream or was it um, the, the other way around? Yeah. And I thought that that was, it was conspicuous to me. Um, when I was reading Ion several years ago, uh, because I had had a dream when I was a teenager um, that uh, aliens had abducted me. I, I was taken into a flying saucer. Um, I was beamed up into a spaceship. But inside the spaceship, there wasn't machinery. It wasn't like the inside of um, something technological. It was just a gigantic fantasy novel, Tolkien-esque forest. Um, just giant, massive redwoods and perfect blue sky. And you know, I was walking through this just incredible enchanted forest and I get to this pond, this pond in the middle um, of the magical forest. And at the bottom of the pond uh, was a statue of Jesus Christ on the cross. And there was just blood Damn. streaming out of the um, out of the stone Christ. Um, and I'm looking down into these like perfect, you know, beautiful circular uh, blue pond and, and watching this, you know, red 
almost Kool-Aid-like, Jaws-like um, blood stream out of this stone Christ. And mm-hmm. out from the forest come all of these little aliens, all these little gray aliens. Uh, they come out and they all look at me and they, they tell me, uh, uh, Maxwell, it's your destiny to start the, the, the true church on earth. Oh, and, wow. And I woke up. And here's the funny thing. Well, I, I was a teenager. I had this dream. I had no real interest in Christianity. And I had no real interest in aliens. I had no real interest in any of it. Uh, huh. I thought that that dream was funny. Uh, it was a very vivid, very intense dream, but I thought it was funny. I was like, that's a crazy cult leader dream. And if I had had that dream, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago or, or whatever the equivalent would be, um, I, I'd probably become a crazy cult leader. Uh, but I don't have to do that now because um, I live in modern times and I, I know better than to do these sorts of things. But then I'm, when I was reading about, you know, Carl Jung has a jellyfish dream. He thinks it means science. He lives his whole life and figures out what actually means mysticism. Right. Um <laughs> And I'm like, well, it's very similar. It's almost like the inverse of my dream where I think the dream is a silly dream about mysticism that I don't need. Am I going to live my whole life to find out that I was supposed to be a scientist? Am I actually supposed (laughs) to be a boring scientist? That my whole life is about? No! That would be like the ultimate. (laughs) That would be the ultimate. The unconscious telling me something I didn't want to hear and me laughing about it for my whole life only to figure out that uh, it was the opposite of what the, the, the apparent meaning of it was. And that's been something over the last couple of years I keep coming back to and I keep thinking about. And even with this whole, all the stuff that I've done with Schizotopia and the dumbass memes that I've made and this podcast, <laughs> and all the weird shit that I've read and weird people I've talked to, is it all just, you know, it was it me descending into insanity, me descending into the, the Schizotopian realms only to figure out that it was all for naught and I was just supposed to be a scientist boring every man? Oh my gosh. Well, okay. So one thing that I think is really funny is that you do mention humor and one of the most like overlooked places when it comes to shadow, shadow work, unconscious stuff is that that does come through in our humor. People are like, oh, it's this demonic, dark, blah, blah, blah. They try to like dress it up to be right. all goth and cool. And it's like, no, like what we find to be funny is also found in the unconscious. And so that, that made you laugh. I mean, I, I think that that's really appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, that is clearly like a dream that feels very archetypally informed um and to be honest i have no idea <laughs> what to make of that um at all but you know, I, I feel like there is a sense with dreams that we feel this need to interpret them and i think you kind of got at this a little bit but the purpose of the dream is to be compensatory is to compensate for some like external attitude and I do think I feel strongly that the dreams go on doing their work for us, whether we understand them or not. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, and there's a sense in which, like, yeah, we can pay attention to them and then perhaps speed up that process in some way. But they they are providing the psychic equilibrium that they're designed to provide, basically. And and so, you know, usually like a lot of my dream practice, I don't even try to interpret the dreams when I get them because I'm just like, ah, you know, this is just going to be so through my ego at the given moment. Like usually I do like to do kind of what it sounds like you're doing, like look back after, you know, even a couple of years to the dream that I had and just kind of um, try to approach it with a, a broader perspective than what I could possibly do in the moment. Because to even have a dream that is unconsciously informed kind of almost by default makes it such that you're going to have a hard time approaching it from your conscious mind, at least without the help of like a therapist or an external person to you, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Well, I know Young would would say like you always approach, always begin by interpreting the dream as contrary to what the conscious mind wants. 
yeah. it's you know it's your unauthorized autobiography as i like to say yeah um you know if you knew somebody was writing <laughs> a biography about you you would want to read it well every night when you go to sleep you're writing an unauthorized autobiography um and so i just that dream obviously stuck with me it was a very vivid dream and you know but as a teenager i thought it was funny um and then as i got older i was like well it's a little bit psychopathic and then <laughs> when i was like actually reading ion and thinking about this dream this jellyfish dream that young had and i was like well that actually mirrors the dream i had when i would have been mm -hmm. about the same age um except it's it's the opposite symbols or it's it's or it's the same symbol but from two different perspectives right and, and it has that scientist versus my mystic um tension in it which to me that's the like, like everybody is out everybody's Carl Young as far as I'm concerned everybody's yeah. Carl Young um sort of prefigured all the 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 tension that exists in modernity where it's like everybody has this tension between mystic and um scientists now and everybody it used to be we idealize the mystic uh, or, or or the religious or the pious or whatever and now that's become inverted where everybody is trying to depict themselves as the reasonable person the scientific person the factually based person um and it did it, it started to freak me out a little bit i was like wait a second i i see myself as being someone who's open to um or someone who's very invested in in the strange, in the weird, in the numinous, in the mystical. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe the whole point of that dream, the reason why it's funny is because it's like, well, no, actually, in the end, in the end, you'll turn around and the true church will be um, that this is all nonsense. And then like the, 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 the archetype of the scientist will win because it has to, because that's just the age that we live in. That would probably be the most black filled yeah. reading of that dream possible, right? <laughs> And then, because then, what is the white pilled reading of it? Well, no, I actually am destined to start the um, the alien church. Christ Church, and yes. I, I'm I'm supposed I I'm I'm the true of all the guys who have claimed to be uh, prophets. I'm actually the real one. I'm the real deal. I got Jesus. I got the aliens. I got the forest <laughs> inside the technology. Okay, I was like, I got. You can have your cake and eat it too with my Jesus Alien Church. All right, you can be technological um, and uh, primitive. You can be uh, Tolkien-esque and science fiction. Okay, you can be all these things at the same time. Yeah. No. No. Totally. Well, I mean, actually, fun little tangent um, anecdote is that I actually accidentally like started a cult when I was 11 on the internet, it centered around mermaids. And it was because I didn't yeah. understand what active imagination was. So I just thought everything in my head was like, not real in the way that I talk about it being real. Today. <laughs> like, real, real. This is very Zoomer Youngian. This is very um, Zoomer Youngian. Yeah, well, I've also joked that this is going to be the reason that I get canceled is for this like mermaid cult that I founded when I was 11. Because like, it was a cult, like it was full. Tell us about the mermaid cult. <laughs> um no well it was you know I don't know like to what extent that I can like talk about it because I think it was clearly... criminally I think the statute of limitations uh the statute of limitations <laughs> has expired right or you were a minor right I don't think you can be charged now for I don't know what's possible cyber but... crimes I well I think it's more of like the social crime because you know there, there's very much like a predator prey um sort of uh, framework or a dynamic that we're always looking for in in people like am i am i the victim or am i the aggressor sort of thing and so mm -hmm. when it comes to social or like the court of uh social opinion um this is i think something that i could maybe be canceled for but it depends on whether you think like bad action what did you do i, I mean I, I just <laughs> 
uh, I basically inadvertently convinced, and I, I believed it too. So it's not that I was like trying to lie, but mm-hmm. convinced a group of about 15 uh, girls ages like 11. I was the youngest to mm, like 15 was maybe the oldest. I'm not totally sure that we were descended from like a spirit realm and like were mermaid princesses and that at some point we would like transcend back to the spirit realm and it was this whole thing it had like a very kind of in-depth and complex um kind of world building element to it most of which I have forgotten I think because I have just repressed the hell out of this memory um but you know like I was very much on board with it and there were other people who kind of contributed to the lie and so like and and I was like sort of the prophet figure of this group at least initially there was another girl who took over after me but um you got your apostle Paul in there being like okay I will interpret (laughs) I can interpret did we have the we have the mermaid oracle but obviously I interpret uh the the oracle a a little bit like that yeah there Mm -hmm. was definitely kind of that um thing going on but you know at, at some point I I like I think I turned to 12 and I was like oh mm, maybe this isn't real and I didn't really know how to deal with it because a lot of the girls involved with this were in very bad um places with their right. mental health and so I had to kind of continue to lie because I was unsure if people were gonna like honestly try and kill themselves to get to this dimension I even said I was like if you kill yourself you don't get to go but um oh wow you gotta put you gotta put you gotta make it a mortal sin yeah yeah exactly pretty much already um, already you're (laughs) you've got yourself right into like catholic dogma where you have to be like okay only one person can interpret the there's only one (laughs) vicar of the mermaids who can interpret the mermaids okay there's no suicide allowed okay that's cheating that's not how you get into the mermaid realm yeah exactly and so i don't know it's just it was it was crazy it was insane um and i i like tried to end it as gently as i could but i didn't know what i was doing and i was really afraid for these people's you know kind of well-being and I was afraid of what I had done because I had slipped into this fantasy too but it is something that I, I think about um regularly uh-huh. with regard to the prophet archetype and specifically like what Kingsley was saying about Jung in terms of um you know identifying with the prophet archetype and kind of walking that that razor edge of of kind of going into these terrains that no one else seems to have gone into while also maintaining some semblance of humanity and really towing the line between the prophet archetype and the everyman archetype. And to, to, I, I just bring this up in relationship to your dream that, that, you know, like to have a dream like that certainly calls you in one direction. And I think there is something worthwhile in heading in that direction, but, you know, tentatively, like carefully. Right. Well, it's interesting because for you, it's like it, it, it's it's both the end of your childhood and the beginning of your adulthood. Like mm-hmm. it's this, it's like the last vision of your childhood, um, and then the first nightmare <laughs> of your of your adulthood uh, simultaneously. Exactly. Uh, and then for, for me, the the Jesus alien dream that was like I, I had to be like seventeen, eighteen. So I'm like right at the end of puberty, right at the end of high school. Um, and for me, it's just funny. It's like a cosmic joke. But then as the years have gone on, it gets less funny, <laughs> more disturbing. Yeah. Um, but, hmm. Well, I and think, also, oh, yeah, sorry. No, please go ahead. I just think that there is something to the idea that if you are drawn to kind of the topics that it seems we are both drawn to sort of to this um, questioning on the fringes of what is acceptable to question you you necessarily are going to be pulled 
by um, this sort of prophet or early explorer sort of energy um, or even like identification purely because you start to see stuff that nobody else has seen um, or nobody else seems to see whether that shit exists or not, you know, whether that's real or even valid is beside the point. It's the fact that you are approaching the world from like a, a, just an inherently different perspective in that like you can't get people to hear you, I think makes you want to take on the identification of somebody who could get masses to hear you. And I don't know, that's just kind of speculative, but I could see where that dream might also be informed there. All right. So we'll come up with a cult. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? <laughs> if the world needs a daddy and maybe needs a mommy more, and <laughs> we can be that mommy. We we can be, we can be the, the anima of the new age. Um, there we go. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. Um, thank you for humoring me. Uh, where can people find you? Where, where can they help support your work? Ooh, you have your own okay. podcast. Yes. So you can follow me on Instagram, which is free uh, at Carl Jung memes spelled exactly the way that you would think it's spelled. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, there's a little link in my bio that takes you to my Patreon, which is called Nikias, which is N-E-K-Y-I-A-S. Um, and that's where I host a um, it's a scripted podcast about depression. It draws on my experience with Jung. It draws on my experience with sort of like a Mm, like a phenomenological uh, approach to metaphysics maybe is the best way to put that but it's it's really an attempt to break down a model of depression that I've been working on through 10 years of experience with that particular mental illness and um, I would really appreciate the support so that I can continue doing some of the work that I'm doing. So anyone you want to give a shout out to other than Jordan Peterson? <laughs> I don't know that I want to give a shout out to Jordan Peterson but um, fair enough uh Oh man, I don't know. I don't know if any of my friends are going to listen to this. <laughs> um, they uh, will. Shout out to my boyfriend, Sebastian, who I'm going to make listen to this and for helping me um, pursue the topics that I'm trying to pursue. He's been a very big support in this, even though he has no idea what, like, who Carl Jung is or about any <laughs> topics I'm into. I just start ranting about some like mystical ass sounding shit. And he's like, okay, babe, I love you. <laughs> They'll learn. Tell him about, tell him you're bringing the mermaid cult back. He'll, he'll get on board. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Isn't Sebastian one of the characters in Little Mermaid? <laughs> Am I mystery? Is that isn't Sebastian one of the characters in Little Mermaid? Isn't that one of the fish named Sebastian? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty after. sure. Yeah. Okay, all right. All yeah. right. Well, we're all going under the sea. <laughs> yes. <laughs>